Real style is about much more than fashion. Real style starts with being comfortable in your own skin. Let's take a journey inside style with your host, style expert, George Worrell. Welcome to InsideStyleDCRadio.gov 96.3 HD4. Thank you for tuning in today, and I am welcoming you to Inside Style. Today, we have the pleasure of our guest is Mr. Reggie Van Lee. Reggie, thank you so much for coming. We've not seen each other for years and years, but I have been following you through social media and all of the wonderful things that you do. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the reconnect. This is yeah, great. Isn't this great? I'm yeah. great. I'm great. And we were sitting here talking about that you hail from the wonderful state of Texas, Houston. I did. Yeah. I did. How was that growing up and and the difference of being like more East Coast than being Southwest? Well, all I knew was Houston. Okay. Uh, and I had an amazing family that was very protective and very loving and very comforting. And so I had a great childhood. I didn't realize I was in the segregated South. I didn't realize that these issues are facing us as, as I have come to know once I left the South. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming to the East Coast was great for me as well. So I, I like to live in both places. Yeah, and I saw a picture when I was kind of researching some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, there's a wall with your sisters and your family in their um, graduation um, outfits. I love that. So that was that was that was something that was a mantra for you as education. Education was critical mm-hmm. in my family. My parents were big supporters and I have four older sisters. All of us went to college. All of us have graduate degrees. And that's because our parents put that emphasis on education. And so showing our uh, high school commencement pictures. We all went to the same high school. Okay. It was important. We were all valedictorians from the high school. Mm-hmm. So this is my parents' wow. influence. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what brought you to the East Coast? Um, I, my parents told me that when I was five years old, mm-hmm. I told them that I was going to live in New York. I don't remember that, but they reminded me of that when I did move. Mm-hmm. I went to school in Boston. Mm-hmm. I was recruited for work to New York when I graduated from college and uh, so it never turned back. I still, Houston is still my home, my mm-hmm. original home. Mm-hmm. I have a home there in Texas. I'm a resident of the state of Texas, but I love the East Coast. Yeah. So you're back and forth and like thrills of like Washington, New York. And, you know, so what was your first job and what brought you there and the influence and the impact that you think it had for you? My first job was at NASA when I was in high school. They had an internship in the summer, in my junior year and senior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did sort of pre-engineering type work, mm-hmm. sort of math and science type work. I was a big sort of math and science person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it let me know that I really like technology. Mm-hmm. I really like being in a corporate sort of environment. And with an agency like NASA, that was mm-hmm. interesting. People understood mm-hmm. what you did because everybody knew about NASA. So yeah. that was my introduction. Oh, my God. So how what did you see there? Were there many African-Americans, women, people of color? When there you... were not many, mm-hmm. but I was part of a program through my high school, which was an all-black high school. So I saw other black kids there. And mm-hmm. I remember the main administrator that we worked with was a black woman. Okay. So that was important to me. And I grew up in a house with all these black <laughs> women. People wondered if my father was there. My father was always there, mm-hmm. but having a very strong mother, four older sisters who were very strong, mm-hmm. the influence of women on me was profound. That and that your parents could, your father allowed or or just accepted and partnered with your mother, exactly. being strong and, and and helping to guide. That's that's something that we don't hear a lot about. 
And I didn't fully appreciate that until I went out into the world and realized not everyone is raised that way. Mm -hmm. But my parents really had this partnership going mm -hmm. with the kids and the importance of education and having dignity about yourself and uh, impressing yourself and others in the right sort of way, not in the wrong sort of way, mm -hmm. being philanthropic, being mm -hmm. religious based. All of these were things that were core values for my family. And both parents really pushed it. Tell us a little bit about your life in New York um, once you got started and kind of navigating your way through New York and knowing that meeting people and holding and developing relationships is is like 85 percent of what you do aside from the exactly, job. <laughs> exactly. And it's funny, I, I think I sort of stumbled into that approach because I've always liked people. I've always liked to engage with people. I've always found people interesting. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered I'm sort of intellectually curious. I want to figure out what makes a person tick and how do I get to understand them and, and what is their good and interesting about them. Amongst all the other bad things that people may have, there's always something interesting, some way to connect with people. Mm -hmm. So New York was a great experimentation for me mm -hmm. to figure out how do I come from the South to the East Coast and make that happen as well. But I, I did it through Boston. I started with my four mm -hmm. or five years in Boston, so I got acclimated to the East Coast there. Mm -hmm. And then New York to me is like the nirvana okay. of being on the East Coast. <laughs> uh, but I, I've enjoyed the interactions. And, and I find New York so interesting because there's so many different types of people there. Mm -hmm. You go to a party and you have a corporate person, you have a hairdresser, you have an actor, mm -hmm. you have all sorts of people mm -hmm. uh, in the room. And that just sort of feeds my intellectual curiosity. So how do you find your niche? Because what I see with you and I think with many people who have an artistry, about them, that there's not one thing that they do. Like right. my parents work for federal government and that's what they did mm -hmm. until they retired. What like for our listeners, for young people, we do the Marion Barry Summer Youth Program mm -hmm. and they will be listening. What advice do you give about, you know, finishing college, looking at your degree, what you the path that you want to choose? Does it have to be straightforward? Can it veer? Tell us about how you feel about that. There are many pathways to what you'd want to do in life. Mm -hmm. It has to be something you want to do in life as well. Don't do it for others. Mm -hmm. And all of us as kids, perhaps, who are trying to please our parents, our teachers, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you have to claim your life and do what you want for yourself. Mm -hmm. So for me, uh, being from Texas, being a person who was a math and science person, but starting my ballet training when I was four years old. So I studied dance all the way through elementary school, junior high school, and high school. Mm -hmm. uh, then when I went to college, I continued to take <coughs> dance classes on the side when I was at MIT. Mm -hmm. Finished MIT, decided if I'm ever going to do dance, now is the time. I could be a dancer and then become an engineer, but I couldn't be an engineer and then become a dancer. So I went on to dance at Ailey for a year, tried that for a year, uh, and got out of my system the being a dancer and realized that the whole point of my study of my dance was to become a patron of dance and a patron mm. of the arts. And so to take my business acumen and cannot combine it with my interest in the arts to really help advance the arts in a way perhaps I never could have done just as a performer. That's good for other people. For me, I need to be the person on the board that's driving the organization that's helping them grow, that's helping them fundraise, et cetera. So there are many, many paths uh, to what you do. I, my degree was in engineering. I went to Exxon after I left Ailey. I was there three months and realized mm, engineering is not going to be for me forever. Mm -hmm. But I worked there for two years, then went to business school, discovered management consulting when I was in business school because I'd never heard of that as a field before. Mm -hmm. I thought consultants were either old people who were in retirement <laughs> consulted or young people between real jobs they consulted until so they got a real job. And I discovered this whole industry of consulting. Mm -hmm. Went there for two years, stayed for 32 years. Uh, discovered private equity while I was doing the consulting, 
I, and I retired in 2016. That lasted three years, failed retirement, uh, and came back in 2019 to the firm that had bought my consulting firm, the private equity firm, the Carlisle Group. So if you look at my path, some people say, oh, it looks very orchestrated, very organized. No, it was just what was in front of me at the moment, what was interesting, what was an opportunity, and you go for it. And don't feel constrained by what I did before has to decide what I'll do next. Or this person told me I have to do this, so let me do it. Do what you want to do and be successful. And you just kind of navigated into it and exactly. were good at it. That's yes, another I, thing. I was, I was <laughs> able to figure it out. Yeah. And a passion? Oh, yeah. I, I love what I do. Mm-hmm. I, what I figured out at the core is my love for problem solving. So I like to get a difficult problem and figure out how to solve it. Doesn't matter where it's in, whether it's in technology, whether it's in private equity or financial services, whether it's with an arts organization that's trying to survive, whether it's in my church and we're trying to grow the membership of the church, picking up a problem, a naughty problem and solving it is what gives me great passion. Great passion. And people are looking for people like that. They can solve problems. Everybody has problems. (laughs) Yeah, they do. And they'll pay for it. If you can solve this, we'll pay for it because I can't solve it. Exactly. So, you know, I had the pleasure of um, coming to a uh, event at your home in New York. And so I know that one, entertaining plays a big role and fashion plays a big role in what you do. How did all of those things come together for you? Like to entertain and see friends and mm-hmm. business and all of that. How does that equate in putting it together for you? Because you do it very well. Well, I try. I try. I enjoy it. And I hope that shows in, in what it I does. do. Yeah. And, and I do it for my guests. And then I get the benefit out of it as a result. So to me, what makes my events so fantastic are always my guests. You can put it in a nice place with everyone standing, looking at each other and holding their nose up and no one's really talking. It's not much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mix it up. Uh, I don't want the same type of people at my party. So you can find someone interesting and different mm-hmm. instead of the same old echo chamber of the same people talking about the same things yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I've just learned and I've, I experimented with it and I've done some, you know, trying things, putting people <laughs> in a room that you think, oh, this is not going to go well, but. It goes fine. It goes fine. And, and yeah. it's funny because uh, I was talking to one of my sisters about I am capable of disinviting people from the group. <laughs> if you get into the group and you're not trying to be a person mm-hmm. and to connect with people and you think you're too haughty for that, then you just are disinvited, never mm-hmm. to be invited again. Why do, what is that about? Like what, you know, because we see it. And not many people talk about it. It's right. like when we get to a certain level, especially in the African-American culture, like we're both African-American, so right. that's my expertise. But right. I think I was always raised that accomplishments means that, one, you give the other person a helping hand and that, you know, you may say something if asked. But there's this class structure mm-hmm. that I see that is if you're not doing this or not there, that that's not going to work. And I just thought that was bad manners. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't being elevated. How do you feel about that? Well, there was a time when I really was annoyed by, if not angered by people like that. I've come to realize that those people have their issues. Oftentimes it's insecurity that causes them to behave that sort of way. And so instead of being angry with you, I kind of feel sorry for you, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes I need to feel sorry for you from a distance. <laughs> so not in my group. You go over there with that that drama that you bring to the table. But yeah. people in pain try to cause pain. And so mm-hmm. if I'm insecure about who I am, then I'm trying to put you down to make me feel better, better about myself. Mm-hmm. And that's human nature. But those people I don't want in my circle. <laughs> 
bring your insecurities and put them yeah, at the door. Talk to Oprah. Exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> so what is your decision-making process? How do you come to make decisions? Um, whether it be where you're going to have dinner or something major in your corporation, how do you, is there one core thing that you have on your decision-making? There are two or three things. One, it has to be interesting to me because mm-hmm. I can't deal with a boring life or boring people. So you have to be interested. That doesn't mean that you're rich. doesn't mean that you're necessarily well-educated, but interesting people. And I find interesting people in different places. Uh, and I like a little bit of a risk as well. I mean, I get turned on by, you aren't supposed to do this, and I can do it anyway, right? Mm-hmm. I, I am more encouraged by the haters who say you can't do stuff, and I do it because they say I can't do it. And I tell the story that my, when I went to college, um, I went to an all-black high school in Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. and I uh, applied to all the Ivy schools, MIT, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, et cetera, and got into all the schools. And my senior counselor, who was a black woman, called me out of class to her office, I assumed to congratulate me on all these offers I had. And she proceeded to tell me how she'd hate for me to go to Boston and embarrass myself and waste my parents' money, that perhaps I should go to a local school where I could compete. She was being a hater. And I, being a polite (laughs) young person, thanked her for her advice, but I had people around me that encouraged me to go and do it. And so when I graduated from MIT, she was still in my high school. And I went back and showed her my diploma, right? And she started to apologize. And I said, no, no, you don't realize how much you encouraged me. Because when I mm. did not want to stay up late and study, I could hear you in my head saying I didn't belong there. I was determined to make that not true. So I tell people, haters have a purpose in your life. But their purpose for me is to do what the haters said I can't do. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that encourage me. When I'm learning something, where it's interesting, where it's a challenge, and where I'm, I'm breaking through barriers that I wasn't supposed to. Mm-hmm. And that you have. Well, what is, how does travel play a role in what you do and how you feel um, about what you do? Yeah, like with, going to other Travel countries? is mind expanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you realize that there's a whole world out there that has different cultural idiosyncrasies that find things interesting in different sort of ways. And so you can be locked in your sort of uh, stringent way of living and you can realize there are many ways to live a life and many ways to enjoy life. So, and I enjoy experiencing the cultures of people. I do a birthday party each year out of the country. I've been doing it since 1986. Mm -hmm. And I make sure that we don't just go to the five-star hotel that could be anywhere. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure we also see where we are, see some of the local people, understand the culture, Mm -hmm. do some volunteer work with uh, an orphanage there or or a charity there or something. So that's when you really get to see the world and become a global citizen. Really? What's the most fantastic place that you think you could either live or go back very frequently? Well, Paris is the city that I love the most in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I want to live in Paris because I kind of like the notion of it being an escape, escape. not a place where I'm living. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the most interesting place I've been on these birthday parties has been Bhutan. Mm. And it was a place I never would have gone to before. I would certainly go to again. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pride themselves on it's the country of happiness mm-hmm. instead of a gross national product. They have gross national happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe because the altitude is so high, you feel ethereal <laughs> when mm-hmm. you're there. But it's something very special about Bhutan. Mm. So that, that brings us to when I want to talk about happiness. Every time I've seen you, there's always been a glow, an inner something about you. Tell us how you maintain that and how it how it came about. Has it always been or 
do you, you know, is it something every day? Do you have to work on it? You know, <laughs> you know like all that. Right? All that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it started, I think, with my parents and our religious background, which is to be a thankful person mm-hmm. and to appreciate that which you have. Because there are tons and tons of people that are in much worse situations than you. Mm-hmm. So instead of feeling like I've got to make you feel bad to feel better about myself, <clears throat> I look at other people and say, you know, my situation is pretty good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm pretty blessed. And I think having that spirit causes your situation to be even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I enjoy life. I, I always wear joy um, when I can. Mm-hmm. Are you an avid reader? So this is interesting. When I was a kid, my mother made me read so many books every year that I said, when I become an adult, I'm not going to read anything. So to most people's surprise, I read very little mm-hmm. right now, but I get my insight from talking to people, mm-hmm. from interacting with people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, perhaps everyone's all reading some news or something like that. But I, mm-hmm. I prefer that experience with people versus the solitude of just sitting and reading something myself. But that's that's me. Mm-hmm. What's your how would you describe your personal style? Uh, <clears throat> I like something that is different, um, that is a little edgy, that. People, I actually like when people say, "Wow, I love what you have on." I could never wear that. that? I could never get oh, I get. Wouldn't a, think I couldn't get. Oh, I couldn't get away with that. Yeah. I, I kind of like that as long as I'm getting away with it. Okay, know? yeah, yeah. Uh, but I know my mother uh, would say, as as some, some famous celebrity once said, "Whenever you're fully dressed, Reginald, and you love what you have on, look in the mirror and take one thing off." Because our view is I was always just a little overdressed, right? <laughs> so I, I sometimes exercise that. I always think of it, but sometimes I just go with what I have on. Have you ever thought you had to you had to fit in in some of your corporate jobs and what you're wearing? So do you have like looks for different times or different places that you're going? Do only you play to, some, to your audience? Only to some extent. I mean, I always I was keen on wearing the Giorgio Armani suits and the Italian suits with the Italian cut mm-hmm. when I was a new associate. Uh, with the firm, and that was different. And I never get one senior partner uh, admonished me because he thought my briefcase was a little too small because it was an Italian. It wasn't okay. a thick, bulky sort of thing to really carry the things I needed to carry. As an associate, I should have like this big bag full of stuff, right? Um, so I've challenged it sometimes. But also, I know I live in a world with others, mm-hmm. and you can't always do everything you want to do. Mm-hmm. And is it more important that you wear this suit or carry this bag, or is it more important that you have that job and get so paid? you can buy the bag? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I never get it twisted. You know, I realize what what I can push and what I can't. But I will try stuff and look for the reaction. If it's too crazy, I'll pull back. Right? But that's fun. Yeah, because you can do mm-hmm. like a piece of jewelry or exactly. you know like a jacket like you just today, just wonderfully. Like Thank it's you. a little bit corporate, but then it has a, like a zing to it with the shirt. Exactly. So when the YouTube come out, people can see what we're talking about. How fabulous <laughs> you look today. Well, thank you. <laughs> so can you take us back just a little bit about your role at the Carlisle? Uh, so my title is Chief Transformation Officer. Okay. And so, and I'm doing this for Carlisle, not for our portfolio companies. Okay. And the notion of how do we drive the strategy throughout the organization so that everybody feels a part of the strategy of the firm and link to their compensation in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. How do we continually improve our business processes so that we're using technology where we can and modern ways of solving businesses, uh, business problems rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we organized in a way that people feel empowered, 
where decision-making is made in the right sort of way, uh, where the economics work, you don't have too many people, you don't have too little people, you've gotten the business right size the right sort of way. How do we continue to advance the culture in the way that you want to advance it, but realizing that the world is changing around us, so how does our culture adapt to and operate it as the world continues to uh, move around? Mm -hmm. And how do you drive the right sort of talent in the firm? And that some of that is diversity, some mm -hmm. of that is just uh, interesting thinking and approaches to thinking and how you interact with people and behaviors. So those are all the things that are transformative in the business. And so my projects that I do in the business fall into those categories. So can we talk a little bit about diversity? So yes. being an African-American man, what have you had roadblocks? Have you seen things? How have you been able to uh, move forward mm -hmm. um, in people knowing you and not that you're black or whatever? Right, right. I mean, of course, I have had and still have those issues. I mean, anybody who is black or a woman and says, oh, no, I don't have any issues well, God yeah. bless them. Yeah, but I don't uh, know that, what, that's, her, what that's, planet you're on. But, exactly, that's not yeah. been my experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I've been lucky enough to be in environments that were less racist than the average. So in my time at Booz Allen, my time at Carlisle, I'm certain that some people have looked at me a strange way, uh, but it hasn't been so oppressive that it has impeded my growth in a significant way. Mm -hmm. And then over time, I've won people over. I've had people to say to me a year or two after meeting, you know, Reggie, when I first met you, I wasn't quite sure, you know, how to deal with you. But I discovered that you're smart, that you're a good person, that you make progress, you make an impact, et cetera. So I, what I do is I just keep performing and I keep overperforming. Mm. And the people that at least are objective and decent will give me that benefit. And I found that really horrible people, eventually they go away. The firm gets rid of them. They decide they want to go somewhere else. Mm. So very little of the bad sustains, mm -hmm. the good sustains. Do you have a rule about not mixing your personal life or people knowing anything personally about you in your life? Or do you just kind of move no. and navigate and, and you people, are who you are? Yeah, I am who I am. And people will say, oh, my God, you know, I know how you were with me, but oh, my God, I saw you in a meeting. You were the same person. So I, it's it's out of laziness. And I just can't, I can't go through all of that. I, we all do some code shifting as black people in America, right? Mm -hmm. But to be a one person here and a completely different person there, no. But I realize that I live in a world, too. So, you know, the things I would wear out to a disco, I wouldn't wear in my office, right? And vice versa. Right, right. But, but there's a, a Reggie that is common for everyone. And it's uh, refreshing for them because when people get a sense that you are hiding something, if you're hiding that, they don't know what else you're hiding. So they can't really trust you. So some trust comes from, you see Reggie, he's one way one day, he's the same way the next day. Mm -hmm. And that's comforting to people. Mm -hmm. Are you? Do you cook? Believe it or not, I've never cooked a meal in my life. I grew up in a house with four older sisters and a mother, and so everybody was cooking. Um, and I grew up in a house where my father said, you know, men don't cook, even though many of the great chefs, chefs in the world right. are men, mm -hmm. but that's another matter. Mm -hmm. uh, so I never really cooked. And then when I went to college, I lived in an all-male dorm. And if you've ever been in the kitchen in an all-male dorm, dorm yeah. it is nasty. <laughs> and so I would eat out all the time. And then when I started at uh, Booz Allen, with the traveling we did, the firm paid for your meals. So I was like, why do that? And living in New York City and then even moving to D.C., there are many options of, mm -hmm. the, I say there are whole cultures of people mm -hmm. that cook for a living. And there are cultures of people that do consulting and private equity. I stick to mine. You stick to yours. What would be your What would be a favorite great meal for you? I love gumbo. Damn. I just love gumbo. That's just my 
They've just about any Cajun anything, Cajun but especially I, I could never eat enough gumbo. I love rice in general, so okay. you know, rice-based dishes I really love. Yeah. So what's going on? So you chair the um, DC Arts Commission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that because the whole scene has changed. <laughs> because I moved to Washington what in '92, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then. Um, I moved to New York in 2009, and then I came back in maybe 2014 to 15, and everything had changed, especially the, there was no such thing as an art scene here. Yeah. So tell us about what you're doing, what's going on, how it's changed, how it's ballooned. Well, it's interesting because moving from New York here, I was a typical New York bigot. And as far as New York is the center of the universe, yeah. you know, Washington, D.C. is this little province, this little sleepy town, et cetera. And gradually I started discovering the burgeoning art scene here in mm-hmm. the city mm-hmm. and the amazing talent that's here in the city, mm-hmm. but how it doesn't get the recognition that it deserves. Mm-hmm. So my goal with the Arts Commission is to nurture the whole arts ecosystem in Washington, D.C. The artists, the theaters, the arts organizations, the constituents that in Enjoy the art. And my goal is for every Washington, D.C. resident in some form or fashion to feel the transformative power of the arts, whether you're participating in it or you're just observing it or something. But that and that's a lofty goal, but that's my goal. And I think we're making some real progress there. One of the challenges that we had was there are whole populations of people that have been kept out of that art scene because of the cost, because of uh, an inability to have access, et cetera. And so we're trying to lower those barriers. We're trying to add real equity and diversity and inclusion and belonging to the work we do at the Arts Commission and to fund organizations and artists that can help with that progress. Because art plays such a great role in one's life to have that expression. I don't know anybody that doesn't have an affinity for art. Right. Even if it's like my father who goes out and landscapes and does all of these wonderful mm-hmm. projects outside. That's art. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what exactly. I mean? The people don't know it. So um, the Arts Commission is doing that, is reaching out. Um, they're meeting people where they are, um, you know, like Go Go and all the things that are just unique to Washington. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And not making it colorized. So we're seeing all of a mixture. Exactly. And that was another thing. Like New York was a melting pot. Oh, yeah. You know, so you could go to the village or you could go, you know, you could have Korean food. You could. That was one of the things that um, attracted me to New York. But Mm -hmm. now Washington is now a foodie town. Exactly. So do you have favorite Places that you like to go, like areas like the wharf? or I like all over the city. I mean, because there's different flavors, mm-hmm. not only to the food, but to the environment mm-hmm. that you, and the, the people in the room. And so I, in my, my intellectual curiosity, I love the differentness mm-hmm. of what you can get in the city. And it's a very international city. No surprise. We have all the embassies here. We have the representatives of Congress and the Senate here. So almost by definition, we have this international flavor here that needs to be more manifest. That's unique. Everything starts here. Right. And it goes every place else. Right. On top of we have the all the free museums, the Smithsonian. Exactly. Like there, I don't know if there's any free museums uh, in New York, are there? There may be one or two. Two, yeah. that It would be one or two. Yeah, be I'm, one I'm or not two. aware of that. <laughs> I wasn't either. But um, <clears throat> it's all of these things that one can do for free, and I think it helps if we can get our young people, and I want to get your thoughts about that, get our young people involved in art 
and get in, in, in culture and the things that are going on because they may not know that they have those uh, talents. Yes. How yes. do we do that? How do we reach well, out to... Well, it's a particular challenge now as opposed to when we were coming up because we mm-hmm. had art in our schools. Yeah. And now there are many schools that don't have art. The budgets say cut that out. Um, the kids can't get... Uh, a job in the arts field, so the school focuses on things where they can get jobs. And so the more, the wealthier schools, where the parents can put up the money, will have an art program. But many communities don't have art programs. So that touch with the art that we had as kids that caused us to understand the value of it, a bunch of these kids don't have it. So through funding programs, bringing programs into the schools, creating summer arts summits uh, for kids, these are ways we're trying to do That's a whole education committee, arts education committee, as a part of the Arts Commission. And so we're really trying to get out there and touch the kids and expose them to what there is available for them. I'm surprised at the number of residents of D.C. that will tell me they've never been to the Kennedy Center. Mm. Never been. And for many, they felt that it was this foreign place that they're not supposed to go to. But there's a lot more. that I'm I'm a trustee at the Kennedy Center, so I'm I'm a fan of what we do and how we are trying to reach communities that hadn't been reached before. And the whole, the reach, the new part of the Kennedy Center is very open and inviting and inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that's an effort for us to bring the community to us and go to the community as well. We've been talking with Reggie Van Lee. Reggie, where? Thank you so much. Where can our listeners contact you? Uh, are you on Instagram? Or? I'm on Instagram, Reggie Van Lee. Hey, Reggie Van Lee. Yes. Well, this is this has been a pleasure. I want you to come back and finish our discussion. We've been talking to uh, Mr. Reggie Van Lee. Um, thank you for uh, tuning in to Inside Style, DC Radio ninety six point three HD four, and I'm your host George Worrell. And remember, real style starts with being comfortable in your own skin. See you next time. You've been listening to Inside Style with style expert George Worrell. For more information, visit georgewarrellstyle.com or dcradio.gov.